So I want you to imagine, imagine that we live back in uh, World War II era. And let's just, let's just say that all of a sudden, you know, in the midst of the warring and everything, that every nation just says, you know what? None of this matters. Who cares? Let's just let Hitler do whatever he wants to do and forgive him so he can, he can do what feels right to him. You think that's a good idea? No, it's not a good idea. Imagine if anytime evil happened in this world, everyone just thought, whatever, no big deal. Let's just forgive. I think that um, I think that wouldn't work. Uh, if you have murderers or abusers and we just say, let's just let them get off the hook, I hope we wouldn't ever function that way. And, and, the, and one of the reasons why that wouldn't work is, is because God in his grace still has given within us as human beings this innate sense of a need for justice. We know we have that within us. Even in Revelation chapter 6, we read of Christians who are praying to God, crying out to him, asking, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? So whether you're a young child and you get angry with someone hurting you, or you're an adult who is struggling with hurts that people have brought into your life, you know what it feels like. You know what it feels like to long for justice, don't you? And we know that justice matters because it affirms the truth. And if you've been a victim of injustice, when justice takes place, it brings some sense of stability because you know that evil doesn't win. But there is a tension that we feel with this. We say we want justice, but there is this aspect of forgiveness too. What about forgiveness and how does that play in with justice? And if we long for justice for other people, what about justice for us? What does that look like? Because we've been singing this morning, recognizing that we're sinners, crying out, Lord, have mercy. I think of the psalmist David in Psalm 130, verse 3, and he says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Now, certainly there are sins that incur stricter judgments than others, but every sin is an act of rebellion against God. And if God is just, which he is, then he must judge every sin justly, correct? What do we do with this tension where we know that justice needs to be served and we'd really like for forgiveness? Now, many people try to answer that in their own ways, all sorts of ways. Some people, they'll say, well, as long as I don't murder that person who hurt me, then you know, I can hold on to bitterness and everything, and God's going to be fine with that. Others will say, we're just going to write off people that um, annoy us or frustrate us. Some people just say, whatever, everybody's going to be forgiven in the end, you know. But, but we still have this tension inside of us. None of those answers actually work. We know that justice is essential, 
And this longing for forgiveness, we know that forgiveness is essential. How can those come together? And the Bible, the Bible teaches us that both of those can be exercised, but only God can do this. Only God can bring justice and forgiveness together, justice and mercy. And this is actually what we see in the text that we're going to be studying today in the sermon I've titled Crushing the Serpent. But in these three verses that were just read earlier, the main idea that I hope that we see is that God's glory is revealed through promising mercy through his declaration of judgment, justice and mercy. Now we know Adam and Eve, their mission was to image forth God's glory together. According to the prophet Hosea, this was God's covenant that he made with Adam. They were to extend and expand the expression of God's glory in Eden and out of Eden throughout the whole world. And Adam and Eve failed. And at that moment, God has every right because he owns everything. Everything is his. God has every right to take Adam and Eve's lives because they have destroyed the entire creation. They are at the top of creation. And creation depends, in a sense, on them and their rule. And so when they fall, all of creation is destroyed. Justice could have been done by God saying, no more Adam and Eve. Right? But instead of doing that, God himself descends to the garden in order to fulfill the mission that Adam and Eve failed at. Adam and Eve are to reveal the glory of God to Eden. They failed in doing so. And so what does God do? He descends on the Garden of Eden in his glory to reveal himself, which is what all of creation and Adam and Eve needs. And God arriving in his glory, hope has arrived, but it may not have felt like hope has arrived. Adam and Eve are being judged by God. That doesn't, that doesn't give you all the warm feels, right? But God's glory is on full display to reveal his mercy through judgment. Now, as I say those phrases, mercy through judgment, many of you might remember the series that we went through last fall on this theme. And you might recall the main verse or verses of this series was Exodus 34. And in Exodus 34, I'm going to read these verses again. They'll be on the slides behind here. But God is speaking to Moses. And in God speaking to Moses, this is how Moses describes the situation. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name or the glory. God proclaimed his glory. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. The Lord descends in a cloud. Does that sound familiar? what we even talked about last week. God descends 
and reveals his glory. And what is his glory? His glory is that he is forgiving and just. And this makes no sense to our finite minds, does it? Forgiving, 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 but who will by no means clear the guilty. Well, if you forgive, doesn't that mean they're guilty? You get that? So you do forgive, but then you don't forgive. What is that? And what we're going to see here in Genesis is how precisely God can and does extend mercy through judgment. That both can be held in perfect harmony. Justice and forgiveness tie together. That's what we see here in Eden, in God's punishment. And we're only going to be focusing here today on God's judgment towards the serpent and Eve. And in these verses come some of the most prophetic, profound, powerful, pleasing verses in all of Scripture. So here we get to behold the glory of God, the one who brings order from chaos. And we ought to be able to say, what justice, what mercy. God's glory is revealed through promising mercy through his declaration of judgment. So we move forward and we see God's glory is revealed through his declaration of judgment to the serpent. After Eve confesses and admits her sin that she was deceived by the serpent, God immediately turns his words towards the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent. By the way, this is something that I really should have brought up in an earlier sermon. Um, if you notice in the reading of Genesis, in chapter 1, God is only ever referred to as God. And once you get into chapter 2, and it gets closer in on Eden and the creation of Adam, he's now being referred to consistently as the Lord God. And if you look at the term Lord, what's unique about how your Bibles write Lord? It's all in caps, which is actually the Hebrew word Yahweh. So this is the, the God who keeps his covenant, the, the covenant-keeping God. This is who we're talking about. So the Israelites, in reading this story, remember, God has made covenant. And God's, God's consistently making covenant here. And so here the Lord God speaks to the serpent. This one who makes promises and keeps his promises is talking to the serpent and he says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now with both the serpent and the woman, we see God's judgment involves a functional judgment and a relational judgment. And I'll explain that. But the first, the serpent's functional curse is regarding mobility and food. Now, by the way, the word curse is only spoken to the serpent in, this ju in these judgments. That might seem, it should be noticeable to us. It doesn't say he curses, so to speak, Eve or curses Adam. And, and, and I think that speaks something very valuable to us. There is no hope for the serpent. Or Satan, who is behind the serpent. 
there is no chance of forgiveness for Satan. Now, by the way, that should also be astoundingly glorious to us because we are created in God's image. We are at the heights of glory and we as human beings at the heights of glory rejected it all and rebelled against God and yet God says, I'll forgive them. No angel that has fallen will ever be forgiven. And yet, many of us in this room have experienced God's forgiveness. That should astound us that we can be forgiven. But here we have this functional curse to the serpent, which involves mobility and food. The serpent will travel on his belly and will eat from the dust all the days of his life. Now, that's intriguing. According to tradition, according to the scripture, the serpent is the tool of Satan. And what we see, I believe, is that forever the punishment on serpents, snakes, should be a reminder for us always of Satan's demise. Whenever you see a snake and you see how they're moving, just like if we look at a rainbow in the sky, it's supposed to speak something. And the serpent and the punishment to the serpent is to communicate that his demise, his, his, his loss is sure. What we saw earlier in the narrative of this story is that the serpent was the most crafty of creatures and the most subtle of creatures, and now the crafty serpent has become the cursed serpent. Now, but you could say, who cares? Who cares if they move on their bellies and eat from the dust? What does that, what does that matter? Think of Psalm 72, verse 9. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. Or Isaiah 49. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Being bent down into the dust is a symbol of subjugation. It's a symbol of ultimate humility. Dust, dust, the place of lifelessness that, that if God breathes into it, then life can come. But without God's breath, dust is death. The serpent is just now slithering in the dust, bent low in complete humility. So whenever you see the serpents moving on their belly, recall the subjugation of Satan. Do you, do you believe that Satan is a defeated enemy? So, so, so we have, yes, we have heads nodding, but sometimes when I talk to Christians, and even myself at times, it sounds like we think Satan's winning. It sounds like maybe we're more afraid of Satan than we are confident in God's power. Have you ever experienced that in your own life? Oh, no. Oh, no. It's like Satan is behind every bush. Well, that was Satan. Well, that was Satan. Well, that was Satan. That was Satan. That was Satan. That was Satan. That was... Let's talk about God. We're giving Satan way too much attention. Satan is a defeated enemy. Right? 
And there are trials, there are difficulties, there are pains. We lament them every week we get together. We lament that the God of this world, that Satan, wreaks havoc. But lament is also meant to take us to the one who conquers all. Satan is a defeated enemy. And there in the garden, this functional curse is to remind everyone God wins. God is over this. God will not allow Satan to win. And that moves us to the second part of the curse, the the relational curse, which is constant conflict. Verse 15. In verse 15, we read, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's going to be constant conflict between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. I, I, I get this. This verse can sound kind of confusing. Are we talking about literal offspring of serpents here? Are we talking about figurative? And like, if we're talking figurative and talking about Satan, then who's Satan's offspring? Or is that demons? Does Satan have a wife? What's going on? And then what's this offspring of the woman? And is it singular or plural? And I've just got questions with this verse. So let's kind of break it down. And I want to start just by answering this word for offspring or seed. This Hebrew word can actually be understood in the singular or the plural. Uh, For example, Cain is referred to as the offspring of Eve. Okay, Solomon is referred to as the offspring of David. Those are singular, right? But later on in Genesis 9, God makes a covenant with Noah and his offspring after him. So that's every single human being who has existed and exists even to this day. So offspring is a big number of people, okay? So, so which is it here, though? Is the offspring one person or is the offspring many people? I actually think that the answer is both, that, that we find these realities both in the scriptures. As we move on in Genesis and into the rest of scriptures, we see this idea. For example, in Genesis, uh, Moses is going to start writing genealogies, those things that we love to read, right? And we can pronounce every name perfectly. It's, it's always the humbling experience when you're with a group of people and you're reading genealogy. And then there was... Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and he gave birth to... Blah. Okay, I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about here. But why does he bring up the genealogies? The reason why he's bringing up the genealogies is actually to show a difference between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And so you get to Adam and Eve's son, Seth, and he has his genealogy. And then you have, you have this contrast with, with, with this genealogy of, of Cain, And so Cain goes to Lamech, and Lamech is this wicked man who abuses his wife and abuses people, and Seth's lineage gets to Noah. He's like, wait, there's a seed of this woman. Now, now, by the way, that doesn't mean that everyone in those lineages are great and wonderful people, okay? It's creating a contrast, but it's also looking forward. Because whenever we get in these lineages, you're like, Noah's not the one, but he points to somebody. 
who's going to come. And, and, and you move further on in the writing of Moses and into the rest of the Old Testament, and we see this reality that the seed of the woman is a group of people, but it's also one. So I love what this one commentator wrote. He said, would this individual or these individuals be among the kings of Israel and Judah who are the offspring of their father, who crush their enemies, according to Psalm 89, under their feet, 2 Samuel 22, so that these enemies lick the dust, Psalm 72. Later revelations will state that it is Jesus who reigns until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. We, we know that ultimately this is pointing to one person because in the text in verse 15, it says, he will bruise your head. You could translate it, it will bruise your head, but either way, it's in the singular form. This offspring is leading to one offspring. This one offspring who is going to bruise the head. So history moves on. Moses writes, I know I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but, but it should feel ironic when we think about Egypt and Israel being in Egypt and you have the ruler of Egypt who the symbol that he would be placing on his forehead is a serpent. And what happens when Israel leaves Egypt? Egypt is, it, it, it's brought down low, like to the dust, Right? And then you have God finally leading the people into this promised land. And in the promised land, God's command to Israel is similar to that to Adam and Eve. Get the idolatry out. Or to put it another way, kill the serpents. Don't let them stay here. And so then you move on and you have a story like David and Goliath. And they fight. Smooth stones goes in. Goliath falls to the ground. And, and it's actually really important what happens next. What does David do with Goliath? Cuts his head off. It's a wonderful children's story. Okay. But what is he doing? He's crushing the head. He's getting rid of the head of the serpent. The Philistines cannot be here and worship other gods. And so you move on in all different types of story. Even in Nehemiah, we get these ideas that show up. And I say that because Sunday evenings throughout the week, we're studying Nehemiah. But it's all leading to one seed of the woman. Now, many people going back in time had, had a misinterpretation, I believe, of this verse. And in Jesus' time, a misinterpretation of what seed of the woman meant. There were many people who thought that if they were Jewish, that means they're part of the seed of the woman. It's just the lineage is all that matters. Have you ever read in the Gospels and at times just heard Jesus' words and thought, whoa, that must have been tense? Any of you think that way? Yeah, okay. Well, this is one of those moments that I have felt. Jesus is speaking to the religious people and says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning 
and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies. Now Jesus is going all the way back to Genesis to talk about Satan, right? And he is saying to religious Jewish people, Satan's your father. So what does it mean by offspring of the serpent? It's, it's actually what we find in the scriptures is that anyone who doesn't trust the Lord, who doesn't turn to the Lord for grace and mercy, but they still trust themselves. It's anyone who buys into the lies of Adam and Eve, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile or American or Canadian or wherever you're from. If you, if you don't trust and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman he, Jesus, is the one who gives rescues to make us a part of his family. So there's a real good question for us today. As we read this declaration here in Genesis, you can ask yourself, am I a part of the seed of the woman or a part of the seed of the serpent? Who do I belong to? Do you trust Jesus or do you follow the serpent's ways? Jesus, through his life and death and resurrection and ascension and his current reign, crushes the serpent's head. That's what, that's what actually Hebrews 2 says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, since, since we share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus came to destroy the serpent to destroy the destroyer. And how does he do that? We're, we're told here in Hebrews, he does it through his death. Through his death, he destroys death. And this goes back to the curse that the serpent is going to do something to this seed of the woman. What's he going to do? He's, he's going to He's actually going to crush his heel. The, it's, the word crush is actually more appropriate here. It's, it's going to be a conflict that leads to crushing. And so the prophet Isaiah, a thousand years before Jesus even comes to this earth, this prophecy always astounds me. The prophet Isaiah speaks and says of this one to come. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was, say that word, crushed. For our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Because Jesus did what Adam didn't, Jesus did what Israel didn't, Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father. Jesus willingly then on the cross took the death that sinners deserve took the punishment that sinners deserved. And because he is the God-man, he also conquered that death through his resurrection. 
and promises life to anyone who would trust in him. He's the serpent crusher, right? He came to crush, just like, just like God comes down in his glory in the garden. So Jesus then came and revealed the glory of God on this earth and said, I've, I've come to take the judgment so that you can receive the mercy. Judgment and mercy come together. Amen? Glory to God. And so Romans chapter 3 says this, Jesus' death was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over sin, former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. God is just and justifier. He is just and merciful. He is righteous and forgiving. I hope you see that in God stating the curse, he's revealing beauty of mercy. Eternal mercy. So we see this in the curse to the serpent, but we also see God's glory is revealed through his declaration of judgment to the woman. Something happened with my notes, and I have no idea what that is. Okay. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now God has just said the seed of the woman is going to bring victory, but it's not going to be easy to get to that seed. There's going to be difficulty. There's the functional judgment, which is pain in childbearing. Now, this word in the Hebrew for childbearing is simply the word conception. So there's pain in conception. But I, I think the idea that's being communicated here is, is this includes everything related to trying to conceive to conceiving and then having the emotional, mental, physical pains and trauma that can come along with conception. Uh, women, it, to me, looks like having a child is very painful. I've, I've been with my wife five births, and even after one, it, it would shock me that, you know, months later, you ready for another one? Are you kidding me? What insanity has taken over your mind? That, like, I mean, people will joke around about men saying if men had to give birth, the human race, like we would not be here today. Adam would have been like, I'm done, right? There is only one son and we're done, okay? Now, now I, think, I, think that's, I think that's true. I think that's true. Um, but even as I joke, we also recognize the seriousness of this, don't we? There is a lot of pain associated with having children. Many people who struggle to get pregnant 
and can't. There's pain. There's people like even Tracy and I who our children died in the womb. There's pain with that. But not only that, even if you have children, there's mental and emotional pain that can happen post, uh, uh, post delivery and having anxiety and depression and all of these things that can rise up with just having a child. Now, I want to ensure that all of us know that this punishment is not something that God says he thinks is great. Like, I love this for everyone to experience. That this is part of the punishment that sin has entered into the world. God's design is to reverse the curse, right? But sin has brought the curse down. And so what we see at, at, at the core of the existence of human beings coming into this world is trauma and lamentable things. Yet we must not lose hope about what the verse before said, the serpent crusher is coming. Even in the midst of that trauma and that pain, God's promise is not going to be thwarted. But the woman has this functional judgment. She also has the relational judgment. There's brokenness in marital relationships. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. In, I think, the King James, it simply says, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Uh, very simple. It almost sounds like a very positive statement. You know, you, you're, you're for him. Uh, however, just a little bit later, when Cain one of the sons of Adam and Eve is being punished by God. God speaks to Cain and warns Cain, saying that sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, and you must rule over it. It's like almost identical phraseology. And I think given the close proximity here, that the idea that God is stating here in this what he's saying is going to happen as a result of the curse is that the woman is going to try to take control and the man is going to seek to dominate. This is not healthy relationships. By the way, again, just like with the, with the previous functional curse, this is not God saying, this is how you should act. Women, you should act this way, and men, you should definitely dominate. No, this is, this is because of sin coming in. And, and we see this in our world, don't we? I mean, I remember years ago watching some movie, um, and in the, in the movie, there's this scenario where the girl, a daughter, she wants to go to college, and she's talking to her mom about wanting to go to college, and, and, but she knows her dad's going to say no to college. He need, she needs to stay in the family business. And she's talking to her mom about this. And her mom says, well, I'll talk to your father. I'll talk to your father. And she just doesn't believe that dad's going to listen to mom, you know, uh, because dad's the head. Some of you might know where this, this movie. And the mom's response is, oh, honey, yes, your, your father is the head, but I am the neck. And I can turn it wherever I want, right? That is, that is a very good description of the curse. 
Like we laugh about that, but um, that's, that's manipulation. That's not relationship. It might get you what you want, but it won't get you what you need, which is, which is naked and unashamed relationship with your spouse. Adam and Eve have lost this. And on the flip side, men seek to dominate. Just look at history. There's too many stories to count in their reaction and response. There's so much brokenness. And there's so much brokenness within marriages. And this happened because sin has entered. And the serpent loves this. But he is going to be destroyed. And before you start feeling hopeless and hearing about these punishments on the woman, remember, again, the seed of the woman. The serpent wants to destroy lives. He wants to destroy lives in the childbearing. He wants to destroy them. He wants to destroy marriages. But the seed of the woman has come to destroy the serpent. <laughs> Amen. He has come so that someday there is going to be no more sin, shame, sorrow. He has come. And even when I think about this, this curse on the relationship between husband and wife, when we look at the teaching of the New Testament after Jesus has come and after Jesus has ascended up into heaven, the Apostle Paul's famous words on marriage are found in Ephesians chapter 5. And in Ephesians chapter 5, after Paul communicates about marriage, he says marriage is actually to picture Christ in the church. The man is to picture the love that Christ has for his bride, the church. And, and the wife is to picture the love that the church has for Jesus Christ. That's, that's profound, right? That's exactly actually what Paul says. This is profound. That's what marriage is to picture and point forward to. And then Paul goes on in coming to a conclusion about marriage. He says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And the wife see that she respects her husband. Why does Paul say that? Because it counters the curse. In the curse, the wife isn't going to respect and the husband isn't going to love. And that doesn't mean that it's impossible to respect or love. If you know Jesus Christ, he has come to redeem and restore marriages. Is that not encouraging? Does that, can that be encouraging to you? In whatever difficulties or challenges you might face in your marriage that the serpent crusher has come to crush the serpent's designs. And that we can grow, men, we can grow to be more like Jesus Christ, to love and esteem our wives even as more significant than us. And wives, you can, by the grace of Jesus Christ, love and respect your husband so that we can image forth the gospel to this world and say, the serpent's been crushed. Isn't that awesome? And even more than that, you say, well, I'm not, I'm not married, or maybe I'll never be married, you know, or, or maybe you are married, but you know what? Jesus came to restore relationships between men and women, even, in this world. I love 
how, how Paul goes on to talk to Timothy. And he says that we in the church are to treat one another as brothers and sisters, like lovingly in relationship and care like family. And what's so phenomenal to me is we talk about this seed of the woman leading to Jesus Christ, who is the seed of the woman. And I asked you earlier, are you a part of the seed of the woman or a part of the seed of the serpent? And here's what's astounding to me, is that if you are a part of the seed of the woman, if you are a part of Jesus Christ, guess what that makes you? That makes you a mini serpent crusher too. This is exactly what the Bible says. Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan. I would think it would say under Jesus' feet, but he says under yours. Why? Not, not because I'm amazing, because Jesus is amazing, because we are united with him and part of his body. And so he has given us grace to war against sin, to war against Satan, to love God, to glorify him. And as we glorify him, whether we're together or we walk out of these doors and live our days glorying in God's glory, do you realize what's happening? That Jesus in his rule from heaven is causing God's glory to extend around the globe. The mission that God gave Adam in the beginning is being accomplished and it's being fulfilled. And it's going to get to a point to where we read in Revelation 20, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Right? Praise God. Jesus crushes the serpent. He's lost. All the way back in the garden, he's defeated. He's defeated until he's defeated. Now we get to be a part of the mission of glorying in God and glorifying him all by his grace. So ponder the beauty and comfort of God's glory coming down to the garden to communicate mercy through these judgments. Where Adam and Eve failed, God declares he will succeed and through Jesus he has and will. Praise God the serpent will be crushed. And so in just a moment, we're gonna sing together and sing the song, Grace and Peace. Oh, how can it be? How can it be that God has given us this? If you don't know Jesus Christ, and if you have questions about what it means to be a Christian, there's going to be people up here more than willing to talk to you after the service. If you are a believer in Christ and, and you need prayer for whatever reason, whatever reason, maybe you're just downtrodden by difficulties and pains or there are certain sins and you need help and, and encouragement, come and talk to us and we'll pray for you. But let's revel that our God can bring mercy and judgment together for our eternal good. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you. That we can call you Father, that we can pray to you and know that you hear us, that you love us, and that you give us power to be able to glory in your glory, for your glory. 
Now, Lord, I pray that you would humble us all the more in you and that we would find our great delight. Our great delight is being humble before you, knowing you, trusting you, seeking you. Thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you for the judgment that you put on display in Christ. And thank you that you are the victor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So receive these words from our God. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.